Hello and welcome to the Almost LA Podcast. My name is Aiden. My name is Audra. Audra. How's your week? My week has been, I don't know, what day is it? Wednesday? Yeah. A little nutty, but okay. A little nutty? Yeah. Yeah, same here. Moving into a new apartment in Glendale and... You're moving Seth. on. You're moving on Sunday. Yep. Seth had to, being a person that deals with contracts in his job, he had to scream at my landlord for a week at least. <laughs> so now that that screaming for a week is over, I can move in. It's all good apparently now. It's I have all to kill good. This, I have to kill this earwig right here. Ooh, earwig killing. Yeah. Peta, don't it's call off. us. Oh. All oh. right, I think I got him. Wow, that sounded like you got him. I don't. Yeah. I hate earwigs. That's a California. Yeah, they are. California they thing. Absolutely disgusting. Mm-hmm. They are scary. They're terrifying. Describe what an earwig is for anybody who may not know what an earwig is, or a pincher bug. They're called pincher bugs as well. Okay, it looks like if uh, you took a scorpion and then like smashed it on its sides to look just like a silver or like a like a brown tube, and then you ripped one of its pinchers off and put it on its butt. <laughs> It's just disgusting. It's just a tube of just, like, gross, weird... It just moves weird. It's like a centipede, and then it's got these big pinchers on its butt. And it'll... If you, like, disturb it, it, like, the pinchers, like, come up, and then they, like, come over its butt. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Terrible. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, all right. So, speaking of... I'm starting my own podcast <laughs> called Bug Knowledge. <laughs> Follow me there. Your all next right. episode should be on the potato bug. Oh, the, no, that's the worst bug of all time. Always dead and way too big to be a bug. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bird. Speaking of birds, today's episode. <gasps> the eagles. Nice yeah. segue, Aiden. Good job. <laughs> the worst segue of all time. <laughs> Good job, Aiden. All right, we're going to do part one of the eagles because this is a large thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I discovered while doing research on this, I love the eagles, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. One of the first songs I had to learn by heart obsessively was Hotel California because I was like, if I don't know all the words perfectly to this song, my seventh grade head might explode. Um, well, that's true. I know how, I know all the words to that song. So. Yeah. So it was a must. So um, yeah. I, I w- heard a lot of people talking about how like they either despise the Eagles or they love the Eagles, and if you were who, who well despise the Eagles people that grew up then of the time said that mm-hmm. if uh, there was like a Buffalo Springfield group and that was like the cool kids and then if you were an Eagles fan you were like not cool which I don't get so I clearly have not been cool my whole life because yeah. <laughs> I liked the Eagles I also yeah, like Buffalo Springfield I don't, I don't listen to any Buffalo Springfield and I listen to the Eagles so yeah. apparently I'm a nerd I guess yeah well, I guess we're both nerds Whatever. Um, so I got a lot of this information from there's a really cool very long documentary called the history of the eagles um that you can get on amazon and a ton of rolling stone interviews and um some newspaper articles and stuff like that so the eagles were formed in 1971 um the main four players were don henley randy meisner glenn fry and bernie ledden mm-hmm. um so a little background on the guys glenn fry who was born november 6 1980 sorry 1984 he was born after the Eagles took off. He was born <laughs> born November 6, 1948. That's my dyslexia mm-hmm. coming through. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Um, he was lead vo- vocals and guitar. Uh, he grew up in Detroit, Michigan. 
He started taking piano lessons around five and quit at 12. So he was, by age 12, he was like, I'm over this piano playing I do, (laughs) whatever. He was heavily influenced by Motown, clearly from being from Detroit, who wouldn't be? Um, When he was young, he saw the Beatles playing, I think on TV, probably the Ed Sullivan show, like everybody else, and realized that he could get girls by playing music, which seems to be a very big theme in the 60s and 70s. Like, oh, look at these chicks losing their mind. Um, And yes, I do say chicks. I'm sorry if that's not PC, but I'm okay because I'm a chick. Okay, you can say chicks. I can say chicks. Don't be too PC. I am a girl, so I can say it. Um, Yeah. And... His one of his early successful bands was called the Subterraneans. Uh, he played with a few other bands, um, and you know, in his youth, and learned how to harmonize, which became a big staple. The Eagles. Oh, yeah. um, he met Bob Seger around the music scene in Detroit, and Seger ended up mentoring him. Um, he actually let uh, Fry play in one of his songs at some point, which became a national hit. So he got some exposure and some. You know, good learning from being around Bob Seger, good and bad. Um, Bob Seger told him at one point, "quote If you want to make, if you want to make it, you have to write your own songs." Which I threw in there because I tell you that all the time. So yeah, clearly, anymore, clearly Bob Seger and I have share the same brain. <laughs> um, and Glenn Fry said, "What if they're bad?" Which I think I've heard Aiden say. So you're Glenn Fry in this scenario. Yeah. I'm Bob Seger. And then Bob Seger <laughs> slash mom says, oh, they'll be bad. You just keep writing yeah. eventually. You'll write a good one. So right. there we go. That's our dialogue that we have almost weekly. Right. So Fry's mom, again, back to me. So now I'm Bob Seger and I'm Glenn Fry's mom. <laughs> Everybody's like, what the hell's going on right now? <laughs> <laughs> my week's been so crazy. My brain just split into four people. Uh, Glenn Fry's mom caught him smoking pot um, oh and lost her mind. So she's, mm-hmm. she said, quote, I went to his manager, who was whose name is Punch Andrews, um, who was also Bob Seger's manager, and asked him not to give Glenn any bookings unless he got good grades and stopped smoking marijuana. She said, Glenn finally just told us to kiss off and packed up for California. Good luck, I said. I can't give you anything but love now. Like he wasn't going to make it. That, well, just, good luck. Good luck with your pot smoking and your yeah, songs. She's like, well, good luck. <laughs> You're going to fail. You have my love, like but nothing else. Um, of course, Glenn Fry loved uh, the California bands, loved Buffalo Springfield, which you just talked about. So mm-hmm. weird. Uh, the Birds, also a California band. And of course, the first celebrity he saw was David Crosby. He was wearing a oh. huge hat and a cape. Oh, it sounds like so, when we saw him exactly. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so the lesson I've learned from all this, David Crosby clearly used to just stand in Laurel Canyon waving to ca- cars going by <laughs> in a cape because I'm David Crosby. everybody saw on. him standing around in a cape all the time. Yeah, I guess. Um, this dude. is where he also met J.D. Souther, who ended up, who was a songwriter and would go on to um, kind of co-write a bunch of Eagle songs later on. Okay. So Glenn Fry, when he was in L.A., started playing with a band called Long Branch Pennywise, and they were kind of a folksy band, so they played a lot of the folk clubs around LA, and this is where he met Jackson Brown, who was kind of a folky Americana guy, I would guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a big Jackson Brown fan, a lot of people are, uh, but he was pretty big. He was kind of playing in the same clubs um, around the time, and cool. he suggested that Fry kind of move to Echo Park, uh, which I guess was pretty cheap at the time, which seems to be kind of the same situation today. Yeah. Kinda, yeah. Um, 
and the rent in Echo Park, for anybody who's curious, in oh God. Here we go. this early 70s was $125 a month. Oh, for what, though? Uh, I think they lived in kind of like this split-level apartment townhouse-ish type of thing because Jackson lived in the basement and he rented out his the basement for $35 and then Glenn Fry lived with a roommate and stuff above and the, their $35? rent was, was $125 yeah so okay. Glenn Fry said he learned how to write songs by listening to Jackson um, in the morning so Jackson would wake up exactly at 9 he says his alarm would go off he'd hear the alarm going off he'd hear Jackson turning the alarm off and then he'd hear him making coffee and then he'd play a song 20 times and then he'd get more coffee and then he'd play the next verse 20 times and then he'd get more coffee and he'd, like that went on for like hours and that's how he listened to songs or wrote songs? that's how he learned that's how jackson brown wrote songs and that's how glenn fry learned how to kind of the art of kind of writing songs by doing it over and over again because he was kind of on the impression which a lot of people are that you just sit down and you know you hear artists talk about like oh this one just came to me in 15 minutes you know which i think does happen here and there but then you kind of got to sit down and really go over it for a gazillion hours, you know, to get it right or to change stuff. And so that's yeah. the first time he realized that, wow, if you sit down and really work at your craft and, and write over and over and over again and play it over and over and over again, you'll come up with these great songs, which he was kind of like this aha moment for Glenn Frey. Um, so Don Henley met Glenn Frey uh, because they were on the same label. And I'll talk about Don Henley in a second. Um, and like everybody else back then, they all kind of mingled at the hoot night at the Troubadour on Monday nights. Um, and they were also there when Elton John had his Troubadour debut, which we talked about in an earlier episode. Oh, that's cool. So Don Henley was born July 22nd, 1947. He was the drummer and vocals as well. He was from Texas. Um, he also, as well, saw the Beatles on TV, and that influenced him heavily. And he grew up around a lot of country and blues, being from the South. And he said his family was constantly playing music in the house, in the car. You know, he remembers vividly, like, you know, the FM station that his dad would always listen to on the way to work. And he, uh, at one point, heard Elvis on the radio, which a gazillion people did. And because of this, mm -hmm. um, decided that he wanted to get into music and his first record that he bought was an Elvis record. So he started drumming just on random stuff. So rhythm obviously came naturally to him. He'd use books and pots and pans, and, and finally his mom's like, enough of this, stop using all my crap to play drums, and went <laughs> off and bought him a drum set, which he still has, um, which he still had his whole life. Mm. Um, he formed a band in high school, and he, wanted to go into music but his dad who had an eighth grade education um the day that henley was born started saving a quarter a day so he could go to college he really wanted him to have the education that he didn't have um so to please his dad you know after high school he went off to college in texas and um he was an english major he took a music theory class at one point but he failed it but he said he didn't really care because he's like i'm an english major who cares about music right and then while in college, um, he was playing with his band. He ran into Kenny Rogers randomly. Um, I, well, not randomly. I think he went to a Kenny Rogers show or something, and somehow they met afterwards. And, and Ann, Henley's band at the time was called Felicity, and he asked Rogers to swing by uh, their show that they were having late the next night. And they interviewed Rogers on this documentary. Rogers was like, you know, I would never in a million years have gone to, like, some teenage kids like band to watch 
but he said that he just really liked Don Henley right off the bat, that they had kind of an instant liking to each other, and he really liked his kind of gumption and, you know, the way that he approached him and how he asked. Mm -hmm. So he was like, you know what, I ended up just swinging by, and he was really impressed by him and, and loved the music that they were playing and saw a lot of potential in him. So he ended up bringing um, Henley who had the drop out of college and he never graduated obviously um, but he brought him to LA and he lived with Kenny Rogers for four months um, and he started a group called Shiloh which became kind of successful around the LA scene um, Shiloh made one album and they played a lot at the whiskey a go-go and unfortunately Don Henley's dad died um, right as the Eagles were kind of taking off he said he kind of got to see witchy woman take off and a couple of the first singles um but then had a heart attack and passed he'd had four or five possibly six heart attacks uh throughout his life and henley said that he was a constant worrier and basically worried himself to death and then when you read stuff later on about henley himself his bandmates said that he was literally the same way that don would like focus on a problem with the album or a problem with the song and then worry about it and worry about it and worry about it stay up late you know and be like kind of like a stick in the butt about stuff and then mm -hmm. it would get solved and then he'd move on to the next thing and worry about that so he kind of inherited yeah. that from his dad it seems like so bernie ledden was born july 19th 1947 um he was in three rock bands or sorry three country rock bands um before the eagles hearts and flowers which sounds like a girl 11 year old band like my daughter would form <laughs> Um, Dillard and Clark, which sounds like a clothing store, <laughs> and the Flying Burrito Brothers, which, which sounds like they were all super high and needed a burrito. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Flew into their mouths and, Jesus. you know, yummy, yummy. Uh, he had a, a bluegrass background. He played the banjo, mandolin, steel guitar, you know, kind of all those country instruments. And his heart was always kind of on the more country side than the rock side. Uh, Randy Meisner was born March 8, 1946. He's the bassist and vocals. He's from Nebraska. He also saw Elvis on the Ed Sullivan Show and decided to pick up the guitar when he was 10. He loved R&B and Motown as well. Um, he was the nice guy of the band. He married his high school sweetheart. He had three kids before the Eagles even became a thing. Um, everyone in the band said he had a gentle soul. He was very shy, which at times we'll talk about in a little bit, Was became difficult for him during performances he didn't like to kind of be center stage and out in front of everybody um but everybody said that he was literally the kindest person they'd ever worked with in, in the music business so the way that these four guys got together was through um queen of rock linda ronstant um i don't know if you've ever heard of her but she was like mm -hmm. a powerhouse back in the 60s 70s 80s you know um she's considered the f uh, female voice of rock and roll and you know her nickname i just said is the queen of rock she was going to go on the road she was uh kind of a solo artist and then she'd take you know backup bands on the road with her and she was looking for a backup band for her next tour and she knew of don and glenn um, from local gigs and there was some buzz about each of them individually from their you know groups that they were in and her management thought that they'd be a good fit to kind of back her up she she was uh from a well we should do a whole podcast about her she was from a, a very wealthy family um and she has um mexican roots and she grew up around a lot of mexican music um americana music so she kind of has this country um hispanic 
um, musical influence uh, in her mm. music. So them kind of being like country rock, they thought that would be a fit for her. And they both agreed to it. You know, they were kind of, their bands that they were in weren't really as successful as they wanted them to be. And they both really had these dreams of being in this huge rock band that was like their goal, you know, being in L.A. So they jumped at the chance to go with her because she was a huge sensation. She she was she mm-hmm. was selling out arenas and she was the only female at this point that was doing that um, at that yeah. time. So because of the cost of the tours and stuff, uh, Glenn and Don had to be roommates and this is where their friendship kind of grew. And as the tour went on, the band was so successful with Linda that the management wanted to create like this big super group behind her with all these like really good guys that had been in other bands. Um, and they asked Glenn and Don to be a part of that and they had been kind of on their own in their rooms playing music and talking about starting their own band. So they declined um, and they said Linda was super supportive of it and she was like totally this is what you guys should do is go do your own thing and she suggested getting Bernie Ledin um, who she knew from the Flying Burrito Brothers um, Mm -hmm. and she knew like his really good guitar playing and then also suggested Randy Meisner um, who had a higher voice than the other guys and he could play bass and she knew that would fit because they needed a bass player and the harmonizing that they were trying to do um, would be a good fit for them as well so she's basically should be credited with actually forming the original Eagles Um, yeah so David Geffen I think who we've talked about a little bit in mm-hmm. other podcasts, he was starting, you know, he had started Asylum Records and was this big deal all in L.A. And he was picking up acts left and right to form this L.A. music sound. So they knew he was looking for people. Jackson Brown um, was the first one to sign with David. So they went to Jackson and said, hey, you know, can David sign us as well? And he did. Um, and he immediately sent them to Colorado to work on a bunch of songs. And they started playing um, at a place called the Gallery Club, which is outside of Aspen, um, so they could learn how to play together as a band because they'd never really actually played together a ton. So that's kind of where they worked out their sound and, and started learning about each other's styles and becoming their own you know, band. Um, and they weren't that great at first, according to a producer whose name is Glenn Johns. Um, he was brought in at one point... Um, as a potential to produce their records. And he kind of came out to Aspen and to hear them because there was some buzz about them. And I'm sure David Geffen was like, you need to hear this band or whatever. And he was not impressed. He thought they were a total disaster and he initially passed, but he was already out there. So he was like, well, I'll give him one more shot. And he, he had produced the Stones, Zeppelin, the Beatles, like all the big, big mm-hmm. bands. So he was like, world-renowned and these guys were super stoked that he would even consider them um and you know but they weren't doing great he was like they sound like every other band i've heard you know in this genre it's they're not any different so after hearing them for a while he was about to leave um and he's like well let's take a break from this session for a bit and the guys kind of put down their instruments and whatever and they stayed in the room and started just kind of singing a song that they'd been working on and they started doing their harmonizing which they hadn't been doing in the band and it completely blew john's away he was like that's the sound that's what they need to do they need to do all this harmony 
you know, that's it. So he immediately said, let's do this, let's make a record. And he wanted them to fly to London to do that. So that's what they did. And they were super psyched at first to be in London. And they were recording at Olympic Studios, um, which is a legendary uh, record uh, studio out there. And John's rules were no getting high or drinking in the studio. He had Mm. gone through the 60s recording all the bands that were on LSD and heroin and, you know, whatever, and pot. And he was like, I'm not doing this anymore. And the band basically said by the time, you know, he got to work with them, he was so strung out on everybody else that he had, like, no patience for the Eagles. And so eventually, eventually that fell apart, but he did do their first um, album. So the iconic um, cover Eagles album cover is um, if anybody remembers it's them kind of in Joshua Tree uh, National Park and there's an eagle on the front above you know whatever and they're by this fire okay right so Gary Burden who is this um, famous photographer did their first album cover for them and they hadn't even they didn't even have a name at this point for their band they were kind of you know putting all these names around and nothing was kind of fitting and Burden had done um, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young albums. He'd done Joni Mitchell's uh, c- cover albums. Um, uh, Stephen Stills, hearing that they were using Gary Burden, you know, for the album cover, which he had done all their famous kind of album covers, was like, oh, the Eagle, the, you know, whatever their band is. They're just trying to be like us. You know, they're trying to copy us. So Stephen Stills was getting all his panties in a bunch about the Eagles. Um so their plan for this photo shoot was they were going to stay at the Troubadour till it closed and hang out there, and then they were going to take off in the middle of the night, and they are going to head to Joshua Tree, and they were going to take some peyote, trail mix, and some blankets. That was all they were going to have. <laughs> so there were seven of staples. them. Staples. <laughs> staples of survival. There were seven of them. They arrived at 4 a.m., and they all immediately got high on peyote. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, Fry had to go pee, so he kind of wandered off away from everybody, and then Immediately, everybody starts screaming, eagle, eagle, eagle. And Fry says he, he, like, looked up, and he saw this huge eagle with this, like, big wingspan just kind of, like, floating above them. And they were all like, oh, my God, you know. So, hence, the eagles. So the mm-hmm. first album cover opens up. It, you, it was supposed to open up as a poster, okay? Um, and if you opened up the poster, it would have the four guys on the bottom of the poster surrounded by a fire, and you can see the Joshua tree is kind of in the background is like this silhouetted by the fire and then a big eagle flying overhead and inside it says eagles okay so that's the iconic poster so David Geffen thinking that the poster was a cheesy idea ordered them to print it but then glue the album cover shut (laughs) so you couldn't open it up like a poster and because he said, you know, that big, huge poster thing is going to be confusing. Like he thought people were stupid and I guess wouldn't be able to get the record out of it or something. I don't know what he thought. So then when they glued it shut, it actually made it more confusing because when you opened up the album, you know, just a normal album because it was glued, the band, the guys were upside down. Mm. <laughs> so if you have an original Eagles record album, it was glued shut and upside oh. down. Okay, so that's a little. That like makes me want to own one of those. I know. That'd be sick, <laughs> right? And he did that without asking the band. So when the band found out that they were pissed, because they're like, "Well, yeah. now it looks even more stupid because no one knows why we're upside down." So the first single off that Eagles debut album called "The Eagles" uh, is "Take It Easy," and after coming off of the Vietnam War, the assassinations of um, Martha, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Kennedys, you know, Bobby and JFK. 
and all the riots and stuff going on in the 60s, <clears throat> the song basically was telling people to kind of chill out, like, chill out, man, take it easy. And that really resonated, they think, with, you know, the people that were listening to them, that it was time to kind of calm down. You know, let's go into the 70s and chill mode. Um, and then let's go to the 80s and do a bunch of cocaine. <laughs> yeah. That didn't last long. We've been sleeping for 10 years. Let's do coke. Um, so Jackson Brown actually was the one that wrote the the line standing on the corner of Winslow, Arizona. Standing on the corner of I got, what is it, seven Such, women on my mind? I think seven. Six too uh, many. <laughs> way too many. Um, <laughs> but he couldn't finish the, the lyrics. He's like, he would get stuck with that. So... Um, they kind of took it and finished it for him and that became their number one or like the single um and it also kind of became their national anthem so that's you know when you say the eagles that's like take it easy that's like the anthem of their band an anthem kind of like of their their music of the time um so and jackson brown got that lyric because he obviously went on a road trip that took him through utah and arizona so there you go obviously um he showed a rough draft um to Fry, you know, when they were living together, and Fry immediately recognized his potential. Um, he said, he played the second unfinished verse, and I said, it's a girl, my lord, in a flatbed floor, it's slowing down to take a look at me. Mm-hmm. And Jackson already had the lines about Winslow, Arizona, Fry recalled. Jackson Brown let him take it to the Eagles, and um, the song has this momentum to it, says Bernie, and it's called, it's cruising. So basically, it's like this kind of cruising rhythm, like in your car, as you're like, traveling around i guess um so they immediately loved the song and uh it was the first top 20 hit that kind of embodied the band's mellow vibe uh and just with those open chords they said it felt like an announcement like wow here are the eagles kind of thing um you know a lot of other people could remember like when you talk about the documentary about the songs like impact from that just when that song when it came out and this guy timothy b schmidt he was in a country rock band called paco remembers he said quote we would be driving along the road to some college gig and then we would hear take it easy on the radio and kind of sigh this band was doing the same genre but they were soaring way past us mm-hmm. um the second single from that album was witchy woman which was written by don and bernie and bernie kind of started that when he was uh, that song when he was with the Flying Burrito Brothers and they just finished it and then the third single was Peaceful e- uh, Peaceful Easy Feeling which was actually written by Jack Temp- Tempchin and he was playing the song himself um, around San Diego and, and clubs in LA and but it wasn't really going anywhere and he couldn't really break into the music business with it and then Glenn Fry heard it and asked if he could record it and then uh, that became one of their successful songs off of their off that album as well so why don't we play right now take it easy do you have that one lined up for us aiden flynn um yes i'm gonna have to pull it up on my spotify because apple music every time i go into it is literally it's so funny i never i rarely use spotify i always use apple all right here we go take it easy
All right, let's go. Let's Twilight go. Twilight 2. All right, why don't we just end there and go go on a road trip? <laughs> That's a total okay, yeah, road trip well. song. <laughs> yeah, it is. We're driving at night. Bye. Night? No, well, I can't drive at night anymore because my eyes, because I'm a hundred years old. <laughs> yeah. Um, that ends when you're thirty-five. <laughs> so after the success of the first album, the band got a little nervous. They kind of it's one of those things where you, you that's what you want, that's what you ask for, and then it hits you, and you're like, oh crap. So some of them had some kind of success guilt, is what I'll call it, where they're like, okay, why me and not my friends who are all doing the same thing as I'm doing, but they're not going anywhere, and now all of a sudden, you know, I'm this big deal kind of thing. So Don and Glenn, that's when they really decided that they need to become songwriting partners moving forward, because I think they didn't want to keep poaching off of their friends' songs, you know, for the first couple singles. Um and then getting successful off the backs of them. They really wanted to write their own songs and be um, known for that as well. So that's what they did on their second album, which was Desperado. Um, and by all accounts, this album did not do as well. I mean, in the documentary, they say it kind of bombed. I mean, looking back, you know, or looking at it now, I'd be like, no, it was successful, Desperado, man, iconic song. But, you know, yeah. I guess it didn't do as well. Um, but Desperado was one of the first songs that Henley and Fry did together as a songwriting duo. And they had huddled around an upright piano in Henley's uh, Laurel Canyon apartment. So obviously the first album um, had them moving out of Echo Park and into Laurel Canyon, which is where obviously everybody lived at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where they recorded uh, this, um, you know, they they recorded it shortly after the first album was out. They got like right into the the writing mode um, on the backs of the first album. And Henley showed Frey a melody and chord progression that he was kind of been toying around with since 1986. And that's kind of where the Desperado um, sound came from. I'm gonna play this this album too, by the way, kind of had a theme. So this album definitely they said was a concept album so one of them had this book about outlaws that jackson brown had given them and they were all became obsessed with it so they took the theme of outlaws as like the theme and concept for this album um desperado like the song tequila sunrise and on the album cover they're all standing they went to this you know wild west town and took a bunch of shots and it's all um their record producers and their management all these people are standing with their guns like on this uh like outside of a saloon and then the band Mm -hmm. members are all dead jackson brown's with them too jackson brown all the band members are like playing dead on the on the ground and their their uh music managers and stuff are above them holding guns so it's like this whole outlaw cowboy theme which they were all obsessed with um but it didn't really become as successful as they wanted it to and this song Desperado, which now is like one of the greatest songs of all time, didn't really become famous right away until Linda Ronstant covered it because she was so big that when she did it, people were like, oh, what's this song again? And then it became kind of a hit after that. So I'm going to yeah. play, since we all know the uh, Eagles version, I'm going to play the R- Linda Ronstant's version of Desperado. Here you go. If I can get it up here. Desperado, why don't you come to 
To drive the queen of diamonds for she beat you that she's able to bring heart is always your best friend. Well it seems There you go. I almost I was like going into a the zone with that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like sing to me, Linda. She has a great voice. Yeah. Um there you go. So that took off after that. So around this time, you know, they had a manager um, who, unfortunately, I didn't write his name down. Sorry, guy who <laughs> helped the Eagles take off. Um, but Erzing Azoff, who was a who is now one of the largest music, TV actor, um, movie managers ever in the world, um, you know, was a young guy getting started and he was managing Joe Walsh at the time um, but he was a fan of the band already and was eager to become their main manager so he called him up and said hey do you mind if I book a couple dates for you and see how this goes and 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 if I can get a couple dates and some decent money for you would you consider me as a manager and they were like yeah sure so he did I'm sure he got them tons of money and um, that was it Irving Azoff became their manager um, and he is a powerhouse nowadays, if anyone's ever heard of him. Um, so they went into working on their third album, and they were partying. Drugs were kind of rampant, um, and they were just having a great time. At some point, uh, Glenn Fry's quote was, you know, 90% of my time with the Eagles was a blast um, because they were just, they all got along. They were all goofy, despite, you know, some fighting later on. Um, the documentary really shows that they, you know, were having a lot of fun and, and they really were enjoying the success that they were having. Um, the third album called On the Border be kind of became more demanding t on everybody and, and brought some strain to everything because of Desperado not being so successful. They really were taking a you know, stance of like, we don't want to fade away with this third album if it crashes, you know, if we need to come back strong. Um, and at this point, that's when uh, Fry and um, Henley were clashing with uh, Glenn Johns, the producer that did the first two. Um, they thought that he wasn't allowing them to be more rock than they wanted to be. He was kind of keeping them in this like country harmonizing rock thing, and they really wanted to go more rock and roll. And Johns didn't agree with it, so they got rid of him, um, and they parted ways and they started using Joe Walsh's engineer producer whose name I'm going to absolutely butcher but I looked up the pronunciation so no one would get mad at me his name is Bill Shimashik did I say that right? S-Z-Y-M-C-Z-Y-K yeah there's so many consonants <laughs> yeah well I guess the Y is the only vowel but um, you know sometimes Y sounds like a consonant too Shimashimizik Shimizik Shimizik I think is how you say it. Sorry, Bill. Um, 
and that's when he kind of they had this meeting with him and they were like hey do you mind if we do this what if we do this what if we do that and he was like yeah man let's do it all and they were like oh hell yeah this guy's cool let's do it yeah. and and that's kind of when their sound started becoming more rock and roll and there is a song on the this album called james dean so that's kind of a nod again to their desperado outlaw thing that they all were obsessed with james dean as well so we'll play mm-hmm. that in a second um <clears throat> at this point too bernie Ledden, who was really um a country-based musician and really didn't want to go away from that country sound started feeling um, that the band wasn't going in the right direction. So this is when he kind of starts having mixed feelings about being in the Eagles. Um, and he said, hey, man, let's get another guy in here for a bigger sound. He had a friend. His name was Bob Felder because he thought they needed a third guitar. Um, and I'm wondering, too, kind of hearing about how miserable Bernie was if he was getting this guy in here because he knew at that point he was on his way out, you know, and he didn't want to just like leave him high and dry. Um, so they had Bob Felder kind of sit in on a session for about three hours and they immediately asked him to join the band. He was a solid guitar player. Everybody liked him. Um, so let's play the song James Dean, which is kind of a deep cut from the on the border, um, album. Do you have that one, Aiden? Yeah. Okay. One second. There it is. Just Spotify. Serious pinch harmonics going on right there. That's a very Van Halen of them. <laughs> very fan. Or Van Halen was very Eagles. Okay. Yep. Because they came after, I'm just saying. Um, so they were notorious for what they called their three encores. Can you guess what that means? Even um, though I know you have it in front of you. They only did one encore and then they left the stage. <laughs> Why would that make sense? You're just, you're being silly. You're a silly goose. Okay. So the three encores were two musical encores, and then the after party was considered their third encore, and they were very proud of themselves about this whole play on encores. Um, So what they would do, which would probably be highly illegal in this day and age, is they would hand out buttons to people, meaning girls, uh, that they wanted to invite to the after party which was always at a hotel. And um, the quote was, if you're gonna hand out a button, there's quote, no weirdos, make it count. <laughs> okay. So you couldn't waste your button on a weirdo. And I don't know what that weirdo would be, but probably a girl who was crazy, I don't know. Um, so some of the stuff they would do is they would fill uh, the bathtub with Budweiser and lay in it naked and drink out of it at the same time. And Sounds gross. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> nasty. And they were well known for trashing um, hotel rooms, especially when Joe Walsh becomes part of the band, which we're going to talk about in part two. A lot of people that like the Eagles um, didn't like the Eagles until Joe Walsh became part of the band because he definitely cranked it up a notch, but that's going to be a part two. But when he was a part of the band as well, their room trashing kind of became legendary at these these after parties. So one night um, in, in this Rolling Stone article I was reading, they were in Milwaukee, and the ma- hotel manager kind of comes up and he's like, "Hey, you guys, what?" You know, the next morning he's like, "What is going on here?" He's like, "We had to close the pool," and he's kind of talking to the reporter and the band like, you know you guys are dicks in a way. And he was, he looked over at a painting that was of a 16th century nobleman and Joe Walsh had scratched party till you puke a lot across the guy's face, uh, the painting. Uh. <laughs> and then, uh, they looked over to go see why the pool had to be closed. And 30 stories down, there was so much rubble in the pool. It was bottles, furniture, that they had all heaved over the edge and thrown down 30 stories um, that the pool was a complete disaster. So they had to shut it down. And one of the guys looked over and was like, well, you should have closed it. It's filthy, you know, because they didn't want to take total blame. And, you know, thousands of dollars go to like cleaning everything up. But Joe Walsh especially was legendary for throwing furniture out of, hotel windows which is maybe why they are all sealed shut to this day this day Mm -hmm. thanks joe walsh um so at this point as well um david geffen left asylum to uh go on to something else in his world and he sold all of the royalties um like and publishing rights basically to warner um this be kind of came a huge strain with the band members and Jackson Brown. So because Jackson Brown had brought so many bands um, to Geffen to get him started and had made him basically so successful with these bands, the only person that got to keep 100% of their publishing rights was Jackson Brown. So he ended up making a boatload of money and been able to keep all his stuff. So this goes to this, you know, like Taylor Swift and the news recently, um, all her publishing rights are going to that guy that, you know, um, bought them out. Yeah. Scooter Braun or whatever. And she's pissed whatever. So this obviously is goes on for decades and decades. Um, and then Eagles only were getting like half of their publishing rights and they were super pissed and they were pissed at Jackson Brown and most people were, so there became a rift there. So this is when they really kind of leaned on Erzing Avoff, Azoff and they were like, Hey man, you need to get our publishing rights back. So there was a legendary kind of situation between Azoff and Geffen um, where Geffen was like, screw you guys. I'm not giving you anything back. This is what I'm doing. You signed a contract. And the Eagles were like, yeah, you had a 7,000 page contract that we probably didn't read very well. And we were super young and didn't know what we were signing. And now that we understand what's going on, we want our, the rights to our own stuff. You know, this sucks. And Geffen said, no. And, and he's like, this is the nature of business, blah, blah, blah. So Irving Azoff uh, sued him, and it was a heavy-duty lawsuit. And Geffen said that everyone was being ungrateful. Uh, they eventually settled out of court, so nobody really knows exactly what the settlement w- was, but we do know that the Eagles got all their publishing rights back 100% from Geffen. 
So Irving Azoff really went to bat for them, and that's when the band said, you know, we knew that this was our guy, like, for life. He was going to, you know, um, do whatever he could for us. So to celebrate that, um, they went to the Bahamas because they were all huge gamblers. They loved to gamble, so there's a lot of shots in the documentary of them playing poker on the plane and all these stakes of thousands of dollars and stuff. So, you know, they went to the Bahamas to go gamble, and they all had drugs on them except Don Henley. Um for whatever reason even the pilot had drugs so the pilot was carrying like a bag of Vicodin or sorry a bag of Valium Irving had pot on him and when they got into the Bahamas they all got pulled to the side by security and they were all starting to get searched and Irving pulled this Bahamian security guard to the side and spoke to him and all this stuff was going back and forth and the band was standing there like oh my god they're shitting their pants like this is it we're going to jail we're gonna get busted you know blah, blah blah and then all of a sudden the security guard came back he said all right you guys are free to go and let them leave and so that's when Azov again became legendary and was the greatest manager in their eyes because they just got to walk through with loads and bags of drugs um so that is kind of this height of their popularity at this point and they've got their management in place and all this stuff um after the success of on the border um Bernie was kind of over the band and the rock direction that they were taking and all the partying and the touring was just totally weighing on him. So after a show one night when uh, Glenn was kind of freaking out about something, uh, he took a beer and poured it all over Glenn's head. And he said the documentary, he was absolutely a way of meaning to humiliate him. He was just so fed up with everything um, and he is embarrassed that he did it, but he poured it over his head and was like, you need to chill out, man. Um, and then basically everyone just kind of stood there like, oh shit. And that was basically the end of, of Bernie's time with the band. Um, they played a few more gigs, you know, with him. They were playing uh, with the Rolling Stones and opening for them for a few shows. Um, and this is when they started bringing Joe Walsh in and he would bring out his Les Paul and he'd be like a kind of a surprise and he'd come out and play Rocky Mountain Way. And this is when, after the the beer over the head thing, that um, they kind of started looking at Joe Walsh being like, you know, we should probably have Joe replace Bernie. Um, and Joe definitely brought a rock guitar sound and, and, a, and a, a voice, a rock and roll sound with his voice too, um, and the rock and roll stage presence to the Eagles um, that has taken him to the next level. So by 1975, Bernie was out and Joe Walsh was in. And upon Bernie's departure, uh, they released their greatest hits, which is uh, 71 to 75 songs. Mm-hmm. So Joe Walsh, um, is called the American King of Road Trash, um, which is hilarious. And Don said when he came onto the band, he's, quote, an interesting bunch of guys, alluding to the many crazy personalities of Joe Walsh. Um, I'll go into part two about some of his antics. Um, he was mentored by uh, Keith Moon of The Who, who was also Cuckoo Baluku. And so there's a lot of stories about them together and Walsh's antics but the reason Walsh was kind of crazy he said he was actually very intimidated by Don Henley and Glenn Fry and their writing ability so he said he would kind of act out sometimes just because of being insecure which I found interesting so there was another story um, about Joe Walsh and John Belushi 
when they went to Chicago, John Belushi wanted to take Joe Walsh out to all these restaurants. And uh, they were wearing jeans. There was one restaurant that they wanted to go to, which was like very fancy, but they were wearing jeans and they wouldn't let him in. And they even tried to bribe him with money, but they were like, no, you need to come back in the proper attire. So John Belushi took them out to an alley around the corner and somehow got spray paint. I think they ran into a store, got some spray paint, and they spray painted their jeans black. And they came back and the restaurant let them in with spray painted jeans. Okay, which seems ridiculous. So then they go in to sit down and they sit down at these Queen Anne chairs, which were very expensive. They ate their dinner and when they got up to leave, they had left black leg prints on the entire chairs and ruined them. And they bailed and as they're running out, of course, the back of their pants look like jeans. And so they said that they, um, you know, owed thousands of dollars for the chairs and whatever and they weren't invited back and uh that night after their gig joe and john did twenty eight thousand dollars worth of room damage to the hotel that they were in jesus yeah so um at this point as well shortly after that uh don and glenn who always kind of sang lead on their songs um had promised to let randy meisner do lead on a song um, it, which he'd been asking for for quite a, ro- a while and he had a great voice and they finally let him take the lead on take it e- take it to the limit which became their first number one single um, but the song was also kind of became a part of Randy's demise so during the 1976-77 Hotel California tour uh, the band wanted Randy to sing and fr- sing front and center stage um, and he didn't feel comfortable doing that like I said he was very shy and he was also having a, a hard time at this point hitting the high notes of that song. Um, he was exhausted. They were, had been touring for a long time. Um, he was also struggling uh, with addiction, drugs, and alcohol. Um, and, you know, as I said earlier, he was married with three kids. So, he, you know, he had family commitments and he was just not home and his marriage was falling apart. So literally everything in his life was kind of like going crazy. And they were at Knoxville, Tennessee, um, and they decided to skip the Take It to the Limit song um, just because he just physically couldn't do it. And then after that show, uh, Glenn Fry and Randy got into a fist fight backstage, um, and that was basically it. He got frozen out of the band at that point, and they replaced why, why, why was he mad that they skipped the song if he was, like, not wanting to sing it front and center and he couldn't even hit the high notes and stuff? Like, why? Well, it, I think it was because after show after show, he just refused, you know, he, he, he kept pushing to be the lead on this song, but then he would refuse to get, you know, front and center stage and sing the song he wanted to like sit in the background and do it and they were like no if you want to take the lead on this song you have to be the frontman for this one song it's just one song yeah and then he got so sick you know um you know because of his addiction and you know he just wasn't taking care of himself that he actually when he would sing the song he couldn't even hit the note so it sounded terrible so it got to the point where then they were taking one of their most popular songs because it was their only number one single at this point it was their most famous song they kept they kept pulling it from the concert which was pissing oh. off the fans yeah. right because he wouldn't sing it in front of everybody plus he couldn't sing it because he was so sick so you know fry at this point was like screw you and they ended up getting in a fist fight about it and that you know basically that was it he ended up being replaced by don felder you know who um bernie had brought in you know mm-hmm. before and that was it so that ended up being um you know randy's way out 
and then sadly after he struggled um after the eagles he struggled with addiction uh, at one point he was diagnosed with a mental illness uh he divorced his first wife um he was in and out of kind of mental illness situations um at some point he was so financially ruined that they had to have a conservator come in and take care of his money for him because he was just unstable he threatened to uh, kill himself at one point and had guns and it was just just not a good he was really struggling um in 1988 a man named lewis peter morgan began impersonating meisner um he was also had been impersonating don henley so he'd go to vegas and and he'd convince uh guitar like places to give him guitars and hotel rooms to give him free hotels and and he'd tell women that he was don henley or randy meisner and they'd sleep with him so he was totally using these guys and he was doing this up until 2009 they last last know of him doing it and he spent 16 months in jail at one point but that was it um and that became a strain on randy as well because he kept getting calls about this person's you know doing this crazy stuff and saying he's you and he's spending money or we're giving him stuff for free and they thought it was randy but it wasn't so that was a strain as well and then in 2016 randy's second wife um ended up committing suicide after they got into an argument Um, police were called they came to the house and they said you know we're fine we're just arguing leave and then the minute the cops left she shot herself um luckily luckily there was some home footage um, exonerating Randy from you know doing anything they didn't think that he did it she he was he was said to have been in a different room um, but mm-hmm. then he had some um, he was committed uh, after that because they were worried that he was going to hurt himself so he's had not a good time of things um, mm-hmm. but to wrap up this second part uh, we're going to play on the way out take it to the limit and then right. we'll we'll do a part two where Joe Walsh and uh Don Felder are, you know, the main parts of the band moving forward and and part two of the, the So it's basically like 77 on? 1977 yep. on? Yep, basically 70, yeah, 77 on into the 80s. Okay. All right, so Aiden, take us out with Take It to the Limit. All right, thank you for listening. Thanks, guys.